Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. So let's start off talking about the Lon Chaney films that we're bringing to the Warner Archive this week. And all four of them are quite unique. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about them? The four films are The Blackbird from 1926, West of Zanzibar from 1928, Where East is East from 1929, and Tell It to the Marines from 1926. Tell It to the Marines, by way of a sidebar, uh, was actually Lon Chaney's most successful film, but we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, The other three films are interesting in that they were all directed by Todd Browning. Todd Browning is most well-known for horror movies like 1931's Dracula and 1932's Freaks. But when he teamed up with Lon Chaney earlier in the the silent era, these are a little different. Or are they? Some of them are horror, and some of them are more ethereal and not necessarily a traditional horror milieu. But their relationship almost mirrors the kind of thing you see today. I was thinking about this as we were preparing for this podcast. I was thinking like you have Johnny Depp and... Tim Burton working together in a collaboration. Scorsese and DiCaprio or Scorsese and... De Niro. De Niro, yeah. The the Cheney-Browning combination wasn't one manufactured by the studio. It just sort of came together and they really... They were at their best working with each other. Working together, absolutely. Do you know how they were paired up? I think it was probably by studio accident. I don't think... I'm not enough of an expert... We'd probably have to check with the Michael Blake biography of Cheney, <laughs> well, who's his famous biographer. Sometimes, like you said, like sometimes these things are accidental, and that you get this like kind of potent mix because watching these first three films, you know, you're seeing a lot of the same elements: the exotica, the transformations, and the the acting. You know, that just come together in this very unique, unmistakable. Uh, goulash. I mean, they, goulash. Good choice. Thank yeah, you. Um, it's very much that Browning cooks up the stew in which Cheney can be the, the prime ingredient. I mean, he really creates a world where Cheney is free to really extend the bounds of what we normally look for in a performance. And their chemistry really was evident when there was a remake of uh, Unholy Three. Also available on the Warner Archive collection. That's right. Both versions. (laughs) So one Todd Browning, one not Todd Browning. And and I think you can sense the difference. It's also notable that one of the Cheney-Browning collaborations, which is not part of this release, and some people may be asking about this, is While the City Sleeps, which was made in 1928. And that film is basically extant with the exception of one reel. So it is our hope one day to cover the missing reel by using stills and a continuity to finally bring together a restoration of sorts so that people can finally see while the city sleeps. So if anybody out there is wondering why it's not available. Or if they have it in their garage. Please, along with their print of London After Midnight. Yeah, I, I left I left it on the bus after finding it last week in the vault. So, uh, don't can't believe you did that. Any regular riders of the number one bus, if you have those cans, just give us a call. So And the nitrate could burn, so be careful. <laughs> be very careful. So 1926, that's The Blackbird. Not lo- to be confused with The Maltese Falcon. No, or no. the George Siegel film, The Blackbird. Which is a ripoff of The Maltese Falcon. We've, yeah. we've got Lon Chaney uh, playing two different roles in this. He's, he's good and evil. Sort of. 
Uh, without giving too much away, uh, yes, he's playing two roles, the Blackbird and the Blackbird's brother, the Bishop. The Bishop uh, leads a mission and is dedicated to trying to reclaim the misspent lives of those who live in London's notorious Limehouse district, whereas the Blackbird is a gutter snipe and master criminal. Very interesting about the film. It's very Brechtian. Yeah, I was as you were talking about it. I got images of Polly Peachum yeah. and Three Penny Opera and uh, Mac the Knife. I mean, for Mac like Heath. right, if someone was asked me to give the give the comic book summary of the Blackbird, it would be Mac the Knife versus Raffles for the love of a dame. And people could also Ooh. check out the Warner Archive collection release of the Beggar's Opera, mm -hmm. which is based Ooh. upon the same source material. Also to mention, Renee Adderay from The Big Parade, which is one of the most beloved uh, MGM silence. Not yet available, but maybe someday will be, we hope. Uh, she's the leading lady of this film. And so in one of his roles, he, he transforms into a beggar, right? Yeah. A crippled yeah. beggar. I mean, it was one of the great things about the film is that you have a chance to watch, at least partially, some of Cheney's transformative magic at work in front of the camera instead of behind the camera. In West of Zanzibar, which was made two years later, Cheney is now playing another crippled role where he's a stage magician who has lost the use of his legs. And it was such a stunning... He's, he, he physically pulls himself around uh, on the floor. like it's a, It feels really real to me because it's not over exaggerated like you could tell that he put his all into portraying a man who's paralyzed from the waist down and goes to deepest darkest Africa. He plays a similar kind of role in 1927's The Unknown which features a very early Joan Crawford which is a film we released on DVD a few years ago. His transformative characteristics as an actor are really phenomenal because this is the days before special effects, right. CGI, and he would pull it off by his sheer nature and focus. And it's really fascinating to watch that, especially in a film that is almost 90 years old. And, and it, But that's where it's it's still modern. Like, it just exactly. feels that way. We should probably mention that uh, West of Zanzibar is based on the stage play Congo, which was Walter Houston, father of John, grandfather of Angelica, and Danny, Houston played the crippled magician on stage uh, and would later recreate the role on film in the sound adaptation, also available from the Warner Archive. With a K if you're searching. Congo with a K. So when we released Congo on DVD through Warner Archive a few months ago, everyone was asking for West of Zanzibar, and now here it is along with other Cheneys, mm -hmm. including the next one, which is... Where, Where East, East is East. Absolutely. Which co-stars Lupi Veles, who, by the way, co-stars in Congo with Walter Houston. So you can now play with us six degrees of the Warner Archive collection. Or three degrees of Lupi Veles. There you so go. So now, now instead of exotic Africa, we've gone further east of the west to go to <laughs> India. No, no, Indochina. In, oh, I'm sorry. Indochina, Vietnam. I, well, I think it's maybe Laos. It's unclear. I think there were French, right? Yeah, French, but, French controlled. George in the in the general area. Yeah, it's mystery Indochina, but it's there. One uh, of the Latin. things about where East is East is it's a very dark film. Not just the picture quality, you, <laughs> but specific. <laughs> actually, the master looks quite nice, and this is a film, a silent film with its original movie tone uh, orchestral score accompaniment. But it, it, it is, it's kind of remarkable. It's pre-code in a sense in that it deals with 
uh, a sense of sexuality and a sadistic nature of behavior that is is a bit uh, shocking for people who aren't aware that films were that realistic at the time. It's really full of a number of shocking elements. The the, the essential, without spoiling too much of what is a story that I think anyone watching it will quickly fall under the thrall of, Cheney plays an animal trainer who uh, is a single parent whose daughter has fallen in love with uh, an upstanding young man, and Cheney finally approves of the union and goes on a river trip where they run into the Madame de Silva, who then sets her sights on seducing this young man. But there's a connection between Lon Chaney and Madame de Silva, which turns this whole affair into quite a shocking and sordid mess. I think also one of the important things to understand is that there was a wonderful relationship between Chaney, who was one of the biggest stars at MGM in the era, and Irving Thalberg, who was head of production at MGM, and Thalberg and Cheney had formed a relationship when Thalberg was in his very early 20s heading up production at Universal, and they borrowed Cheney to have him play The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923, and that forged a relationship between Thalberg and Cheney that fostered the growth and flourishing of Cheney's career at MGM, which was unfortunately cut short by his premature death in 1930 from throat cancer. So it's a, a life cut terribly short and yet an amazing body of work that includes a comedy that we're about to talk about to go back a few years to 1926 and tell it to the Marines. So tell it to us, uh, Dan, what did you think of Tell It to the Marines? Matt, what did you think of Tell It to the Marines? Oh, let me just say that uh, I had a grandmother who always told me to tell it to the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did you? Is that like tell well, it to the judge? I think so, but I always thought that was in reference to my grandfather who was actually in the Marines, but I think really more it's Tell it to the Marines, kid. Yeah. And uh, but here we've got Lon Chaney. He's he's playing like the original DI, the the original officer and well, general. Given, well, not officer. Given general, the but. number of films that have been lost to us, we don't know for sure. But certainly, this is probably the definitive first drill instructor performance. We've all seen this kind of film before, but what's astonishing is how great Lon Chaney is at playing the Marine drill sergeant. No monster, just a big, blustery soldier turning boys into men. This is like the 999th face. Yeah. Yes. Which is, which is a guy you want to have a beer with. Yeah. Absolutely. And William Haynes, who was just coming on the scene as MGM's uh, leading juvenile uh, young, young star. Uh, this is really his career beginning to flourish. And the chemistry between Haynes and the Brusque Cheney really is what makes this film so special and and a great deal of fun and you also see a little bit of Cheney's comedic side in the Unholy Three and it just makes you think what would have been it's like with George Gershwin dying at age 38 what he could have written in the decades that followed if he had had a normal lifespan with Cheney dying at a relatively young age we have such treasured performances preserved and yet uh, there are films that are lost that no longer exist, and of course, the films he never got to make before. I mean, he died. just right at the birth of sound, you know. Yes, so, yeah, and, well, and he made the transition to sound well as the remake of the Unholy Three yeah. shows. MGM had great plans for him; they he was ready to start another picture, and of course, that never happened. But 
Uh, part of the joy of what we do here at Warner Archive Collection is to bring the films out of the vault and onto your home shelves on DVD, and we're delighted to bring more Cheney to you this week. And that brings us to Inch High Private Eye. Which Goes is from... the best segue in the world. <laughs> so smooth. Wait, ready? Wait. From the Marines to the Finkerton Detective Agency. There you uh, go. I've got a better one. Okay, go. Speaking of Gershwin, Inch High <laughs> Private Eye, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from 1972, has a marvelous score by the great... Hoyt Curtain. Phenomenal oh, Hoyt Curtain. There you go, yes. The unsung Hoyt Curtain, which we will not sing for you right now. So, in Hanna-Barbera cartoons of this era, you have the opening credits, and it explains the premise of the show. How do they pitch this to the kids? Inch high, private eye. Uncle Inch! As simply <laughs> put as possible, Inch high, and that's his name, Inch high. So, think about what his parents did to him by naming him Inch high. Is the world's smallest private eye, but what he doesn't have in stature, sometimes forward planning, he has in bravery and his heart. Well, he's aided by his teenage niece, Lori. Yes, so he's related to somebody. Who's so. normal-sized. Yeah, normal-sized. So this must be a recessive gene. Lori, his niece who we just mentioned, she has a large, hulking, but very polite boyfriend by the name of Gator, and a marvelous dog by the name of Braveheart. There's also a really cool car that you see not enough of, if you ask me, the so-called Hushmobile. It hovers. Yes. Inchai works off and on for the Finkerton Detective Agency. It's sort of a, a running joke of he and his very contentious relationship with his boss. For voice actors, Lenny Weinrib, H.R. Puff and stuff himself. Don Messick, who we probably mention once a week on the show doing the voice <laughs> of the dog, Braveheart. Who sounds an awful lot like a lot of other Hanna-Barbera dogs we know and love. Yes. And in Chai, he not only has to deal with criminals, but he has to deal with the fact that he's so small. So uh, clips that I like are when a mouse tries to, right. uh, mm -hmm. you know, size him up and beat him up. But he, he just, you know, he just keeps going. Uh, and one that I saw, he sneaks into a modern art gallery by going into a security guard's lunchbox, lands in a sandwich, pops his head out and says, I hate liverwurst. <laughs> and then has to avoid being eaten by the guy when he has a sandwich. These are not problems that most private investigators have. He also has a great uh, catchphrase. Which is? Geronimo! And that was one of the kind of the magical things about these Hanna-Barbera series, each of which there'd be a new uh, harvest of Hanna-Barbera series every September on the network's but Inch High Private Eye was more like most of the series and lasted only one season, so there was only a handful of shows and not a big afterlife in syndication. So the shows have been kind of hard to see until now. And that brings us to the less now hard to see, formerly out of print uh, DVDs we have this week, which are kind of swashbuckling and or adventure stories. Literary adaptations. Classic Cine Illustrated, if you will. I just like swords. You get swords, and, swords. And, and, and elephants and adventure and color and, and dazzle and wit from Mark Twain. A double shot of Errol Flynn. Absolutely. And Errol Flynn at Warner Brothers and Errol Flynn on loan to MGM. The proceedings begin, I guess chronologically, we would start with 1937's The Prince and the Pauper, 
which stars Errol Flynn in this adaptation of a wonderful Mark Twain novel, and the twins, the mock twins, Billy and Bobby. Who we talked about previously in Penrod. That's right. Pretty extensively, but a good use of twins. Yeah. The twins, twins playing twins. And the pauper. Go figure. Yeah. And yeah. This, this is really a delightful uh, adaptation. It, it captures Twain's As, yeah, I mean, sense of humor. I mean, it, it, it really... I mean, while it's not entirely faithful to the book, it's a great adaptation. It opens it up for the screen. And the Arrow Flynn character is really... I mean, if you like Robin Hood, you're going to like Prince of the Pop. And I think that's important because this came right before Robin Hood. And it was one of our first times... uh, I wasn't around then, I assure you. But (laughs) it was one of the audience's first times to really get a chance to see the lighter side of Arrow Flynn, that he could be a lot of fun. Up until then, we had seen him in Captain Blood in charge of the Light Brigade, and he was a little bit more dour and serious, and there was a very rakish uh, sense of humorous suave to the man, and I think that is in full view in The Prince of the Pauper, and it's just a delightful film that holds up beautifully. Also in full view were some of the extras' teeth. Um, in the opening sequences, when the, when, when the, ki- when the kid born... They're like, oh, yeah. and I'm like, wow, look at that dental work. And I don't know if that was special effects or not. Those were Burbank teeth, yeah, let's Burbank. face it. <laughs> Probably just in passing, mention the heavy for Prince of the Popper because he does have his many fans. Claude Rains, who then becomes the heavy again for Flynn a year later in Robin Hood. Robin the Hood. Warner Stock Company <laughs> is in full regalia in this wonderful costume Epic, and it's just a delight to finally have it back in print and on DVD from the Warner Archive collection. Well, another one of the young stars who appears in the next one, Kim from 1950, has the boy with green hair, Dean Stockwell. I'm now starting to think of him like that rather than being the computer inside Quantum Leap now. Exactly. I've, I've made that hologram. I think, well, he's a human being. Dean Stockwell was one of the most successful child actors at MGM. They loaned him out to make The Boy with Green Hair at RKO, which is also available from our Warner Archive collection on DVD. But for Kim, uh, a lot of location photography uh, took center stage in glorious Technicolor as Errol Flynn and Dean Stockwell headed to India and made this magnificent motion picture that adapts the Rudyard Kipling novel. As a kid at the time, what an adventure. Helicopter parents would never let their children get away with (laughs) any of this nowadays. Yes, yes. go and get involved in espionage involving the Khyber Pass. What could go wrong? Just the great game itself. (laughs) It's really a a remarkable film and uh, great entertainment for the whole family. And it holds up beautifully well. I think because it was made in color, it's had a, a greater lifespan than some of the black and white films of the era that also uh, have uh, children, uh, child actors of the era. And I'm very, very delighted that they did that with this picture because it wouldn't have been as effective in black and white. And, and both these last two films uh, have the same special features that they had before. Yes. And, and the next two as well. Yeah, the, yeah, all the special features have gone through. And, and, and this one has uh, two different special features, Dan? Three if you count a short essay. Oh, well, there's an there's an essay in it. Yeah. Who doesn't love to read text on the screen? Now, there's two featurettes <laughs> on the locations in India, ancient India and the land of the Taj Mahal. And then there's a Rudyard Kipling essay. And those are actually part of the Fitzpatrick Travel Talk series of color travelogues that MGM produced during the era. So uh, we felt that was back in the day that this disc was originally produced. 
we thought that would make a nice companion piece because those are the kind of short subjects you would see during a night at the movies and the Kim disc provides you with that opportunity as well as a backstage pass to look at what the locations were like at the time. And what makes the, uh, those great is that uh, it really opens up the vistas uh, that normally at this time there are a lot of stu- you know, stuff on the lot. Again, we go back to now my new favorite MGM bridge. Uh, <laughs> George pointed this Not out. The MGM Lagoon, you like the bridge? The, well, I the, like lagoon, the, lagoon. the lagoon is good too, but as we, we talked about it the other week, he goes, oh, that bridge is in everything. And then, of course, in these four films, I'm like, there's that bridge again. Mm-hmm. They just put a different backdrop behind it. Wait till you become familiar with the MGM Country Road. <laughs> That's where uh, Judy Garland drives her tractor down in, in Summerstock, and that Country Road is in everything. I think it's also in Texas Carnival. Uh, they made very exceptional use of their two backlots. It was really yeah. quite marvelous. And the more you watch our films, the more you'll become familiar with those backlot signs and scenes and well, sets. Now we're going to go to virtual France with Scaramouche 1952. Right. This is the remake of the 1923 production of the Raphael Sabatini novel. Uh, and Louis Stone, Andy Hardy's father, starred in the original silent version, which is available on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. But this 1952 Technicolor remake starred Stuart Granger, Janet Lee, and was directed by the masterful George Sidney, who is best known for his musicals like Anchors Away and Showboat and Annie Get Your Gun and Kiss Me Kate, but was equally at home making dramas and adventure pictures such as this. And it's a delight to have it back on DVD. With rapiers. I wanted to take sword lessons after There's this. There's some of the best sword fighting you will ever see in a motion picture in this motion because picture. Because the, the rapier wit needs to actually learn the rapier. And for fans of beauty, I don't oh, yeah, that think too. Janet Leigh was ever lit quite as well. I think George Sidney uh, loved her as, as, as a dear friend and colleague. Uh, he directed her several times, most notably later in 1963's Bye Bye Birdie at Columbia when George was kind of like a production head and also a director there and uh, had established the relationship with Janet Lee. Movies like The Red Danube, which we recently released on the Warner Archive Collection, but clearly there was a, a close relationship there. And I had the great good fortune of getting to know George uh, in, late in his life and go to his house and see his amazing photography collection. He loved to take pictures on the set of his actors. He tried to teach me how to take a steady still photograph and <laughs> did not succeed. He said, George, make your make your body like Let a tripod and, and hold the camera, but Don't it never worked. It. All the pictures I take are shaky, despite my uh, help from George Sidney. But he was a great guy, a lovely man, and he loved making movies. He grew up in the film business. His mm. father was Louis K. Sidney, who was a major MGM executive. So he grew up on the lot. He was like a water boy on the set of Ben-Hur. He was directing our gang comedies when he was not much older than the oldest child. And he really learned his craft on the lot and had a myriad of stories to tell. We're very fortunate that within our archive of interviews, that George was one of the first people to sit down for our cameras and tell all his stories about MGM. And you'll see those things popping up frequently on our DVDs and on television. But uh, Scaramouche is really emblematic of his craft as a filmmaker. 
and it was one of his favorite films. It plays so well from beginning to end. It is epic sweep, you, you know, and then boom, you're in a new location. And I, I really, really like. Well, this it's one. hard to go wrong with Sabatini, but Sidney just takes it all up into a sweep. Our next one, which is Knights of the Round Table, it's going to take that color and make it super wide because this was MGM's first film in CinemaScope. And the new CinemaScope technology had not yet premiered with 20th Century Fox's The Rope hitting screens in uh, the fall of 1953. MGM took the gamble to try the new technology before it had been confirmed by the success of The Robe. Uh, and there was somewhat of a familial relationship with folks at Fox and folks at MGM because Nicholas Skank was the head executive of Lowe's Incorporated, MGM's parent company. Mm. Joseph Skank was involved in the operation of Fox. So there were a lot of ways that the two studios collaborated. So MGM was exploring various different technologies, but they decided to take an experiment on CinemaScope very early. And by doing so, who better to star in the film than their most trusted leading man? And most versatile. Robert Taylor. And as the lovely leading lady, the beautiful Ava Gardner. Beguiling. There you go. You took my word out of my I mouth. I actually and took it. other superb cast members, including... Mel Ferrer. Who's also in... Scaramouche. Wow. Bringing it all together. This is just a very, very colorful presentation, too. They, yeah. they purposely really pushed the, the, the colors on this. And I'm just going to talk a little outside the box here. When I saw this... All of a sudden, Monty Python uh, and the, the, ho the Holy table? Grail. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. the Holy Grail. I was like, oh my gosh, this this is where it all came from. The knights who say me. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, literally, there's a moment <laughs> where knights sort of pop out of the yeah. bushes, <laughs> and I'm I'm waiting for it. I can't help it, and and like so, I I would just say that this is like 100% necessary viewing if you want to understand what they were thinking of when they set up this film. You take out the Lancelot Guinevere story and you're left with Arthur uh, going through the woods. And that's that's it. I mean, like, it, just in terms of context. Only no coconuts. They have horses in this They one. did. They did that's have horses. That's true. They did. And also a rousing score by Miklos Rosa, which oh, is yeah. uh, took full advantage of the then-new four-track stereophonic sound process. Interestingly enough, another score had been recorded for the film first and not oh. used, and then they decided to have Roja, who is the most trusted composer among the myriad of amazing composers that worked at MGM at the time, to rescore the picture. And it is a rousing score indeed, which keeps the action going like he did for Ivanhoe. And, and this was a, a hit. This was a mega hit. I mean, because everybody likes nights, everybody likes widescreen. Everybody this likes Ava Gardner in a flowing gown. Absolutely. And, and this ensured uh, MGM soon adapted CinemaScope as its main widescreen process with films following such as Rosemary and The Student Prince, which are also part of the Warner Archive collection, and which were filmed both in CinemaScope and in a quote-unquote widescreen version, which was a 175 aspect ratio in case CinemaScope didn't take off properly. Oh, but it did. And oh. they committed to a pretty full lineup of CinemaScope films by the later part of 1954. But it all began with Knights of the Round Table, and now it's back on DVD uh, from us at the Warner Archive Collection and available for you to purchase and own. 
All right. Well, that wraps up this week's Warner Archive Collection new release podcast. I'm Matt Patterson with D.W. Ferranti and George Feltenstein, wishing you a great weekend to just keep watching. 